0: welcome to Population Health Plugin, a show highlighting current public health issues in our community and topics of interest to students across the university. My name is Elena Kidd and I'm a program manager in the Office of Public Health Practice at the University of Alabama Birmingham School of Public Health. I'm very excited to be joined today by Dr. Greg Pavella and Ms. Tara Harmon. Dr. Pravella is an associate professor in the Department of Health Behavior at the UAB School of Public Health and is associate scientist in the Nutrition Obesity Research Center, where his research examines the determinants and consequences of body weight and weight-related outcomes. Ms. Harmon is a doctoral student in the Department of Health Behavior at the UAB School of Public Health. She has a master's of science in foods and nutrition science from East Carolina University and is a registered dietitian nutritionist. She is also an instructor in the Department of Nutrition Science the uab school of health professions so as you can probably tell from the background of our guests this podcast is all about health behavior and nutrition march is national nutrition month and we are dedicating this episode to a wide variety of nutrition topics from the new dietary guidelines for americans to my plate to food insecurity and the impact of covid19 and finally health behavior theory so this is a jam-packed episode and we really appreciate both of our guests for being here today To talk with us about these topics. It's
1: great to be here, Elena.
0: Yes, thank you, Elena. I'm very excited to be here. Well, it's great to have you guys. So I want to start with the most recent nutrition news, the New Dietary Guidelines for Americans. So as I understand it, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, USDA, and the Health and Human Services, HHS, update and release new dietary guidelines every five years. So these guidelines contain recommendations on what to eat and drink to promote health and prevent disease. And I read that the focus of the new 2021-2025 guidelines is to make every bite count. Can you explain what that means?
2: Sure, I'd be happy to explain what that means. Um, I actually love the slogan, make every bite count as a registered dietitian, because what it's referring to is to maximize the nutrients that you're consuming with all of your meals and, and snacks. So for each bite that you take, make sure you're getting the most vitamins, minerals, and other nutrients that you can get from fresh foods like fruits and vegetables or good lean proteins, as opposed to having things that are considered nutrient-poor, like sugar-sweetened beverages or sugary snacks in your meal. So I really love that this focus is about getting more nutrition out of the food that you're consuming.
0: So how does the USDA and HHS come up with these guidelines and recommendations?
2: So the... The first edition of the Dietary Guidelines was published in 1980, and at that time it was decided that they would be published every five years. So every five years we'll see new guidelines and recommendations that come out from the evidence that's available from our expert scientists. So things like what Dr. Pavela is publishing could be impacting what's going into the Dietary Guidelines for Americans. Uh, But they actually get together a group of about 20 nutrition and health experts, and they're appointed to this Dietary Guidelines Committee. It's a combination of medical doctors, professors, public health experts, registered dietitians, and others. And they come to consensus about what the guidelines should include based off of the latest scientific and medical knowledge that we have in the various aspects that are found in the Dietary Guidelines.
0: And who are the guidelines for? How are they used? Are the guidelines for individual Americans?
2: Uh, Yes, the guidelines are intended to guide the health of all Americans, but what they're particularly used for for is these different government-based programs that we have throughout a lot of public health sectors in the U.S. So, for example, school meal programs like the USDA's National School Lunch Program and the School Breakfast Program, Um, SNAP benefits, which SNAP stands for the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. That's the new food stamps offering available through the government. Um, So really, the the guidelines are particularly helpful for guiding these meal assistance programs so that they're nutritious and getting people good, sound, nutrient-dense foods when they get these benefits. Um, But in general, as far as guiding general Americans, yes, that's the other main intention of them is to help provide good healthy recommendations for all Americans.
0: So with the most recent guidelines that were released, what has changed and what has stayed the same from previous versions?
2: The uh, recommendations in the dietary guidelines have stayed relatively the same um, based on what the recommendations are for different food groups. So for instance, one of the guidelines is to not just include vegetables in your diet, but to include vegetables of all different food groups. Uh, And this is something that I always love to do when I was working with patients as a dietitian that I would try to challenge people to see what vegetables they liked from the dark green category of vegetables or from the red color group or orange color group. Uh, What starchy vegetables do they like, or even what purple vegetables (laughs) do you like? Because there aren't even that many purple vegetables and do you eat them? Uh, Because all those different colors signify different nutrients that are found within the foods. Um, So the guidelines have kept things like this the same, the recommendations for consuming fruit the same. Um, They recommend that people make at least half of their grains, whole grains. So like whole grain bread instead of white bread. Um, What's really changed in the guidelines this year, which is really exciting, is that they've now made specific recommendations based on age groups. And that's really profound because before it was just general for adults, but now there's more specific guidelines for infants and toddlers, for children and adolescents, for women who are pregnant or lactating, and specific guidelines for older adults too. So
1: Sarah, there- sorry, you got me you got me thinking about yeah. purple vegetables that I am familiar with.
0: Uh-huh. The, what do you uh, have?
1: <laughs> well, so I have uh, eggplants, at least the skin of eggplants and uh, certain kinds of kale have kind of a purplish hue to them. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's really the only two uh, purple vegetables
0: I can come up with. What about onions, are onions considered vegetables? They
2: would be considered vegetables. The purple ones that once you cut into them, they're truly still purple on the inside, those would still go into that purple category, but Mm -hmm. other like yellow and white onions, they're in the white vegetable category. Um, But some others, so I actually went to school, as you mentioned, at East Carolina University, and something that's indigenous to the eastern part of North Carolina is purple potatoes. So uh, I don't know if yes, you right. Those yes,
1: uh, I love those. I've had them. I completely forgot about uh, those. Uh, those are seem superior to the regular t- potatoes in my view. They're <laughs> very sweet and very dense.
2: Yes, very sweet and very dense. And so you can tell even just by describing it that way, it's different than a regular, uh, big russet potato that we're used to consuming. So the taste difference, that also signifies that there's different nutrients in the potato.
1: For those listening, if you recall from the introduction, uh, Ms. Harmon is a nutritionist uh, and more familiar with uh, the new dietary guidelines for Americans uh, than I am, but I was reviewing it and I noticed that one of the recommendations or the the foci of the recommendations include dietary patterns rather than specific nutrients. I was just wondering if you had any insight as to why there's an emphasis on dietary patterns uh, in the guidelines.
2: Hmm, That's a really good question. I think from my perspective of nutrition counseling and working with people on improving dietary patterns, I think where that's coming from is focusing on changing your lifestyle habits. So for us being in health behavior, changing your health behaviors and making it part of your everyday life, not just focusing on quick radical changes in your diet that might not be sustainable, um, but focusing more so on things that you can maintain as part of your everyday routine. So if it is trying to incorporate one purple vegetable a week, speaking of purple vegetables, that could be a habit change. So I, th- I think that's what that's referring to.
1: Yeah, that sounds, that makes sense to me. Thanks.
0: So it sounds like the guidelines have a lot of good recommendations, guidelines, is there anything that the guidelines left out? Any limitations?
2: I think the biggest limitation to the dietary guidelines has been a limitation for a long time. And that is that they're not personalized for individual needs, which is pretty hard to do. It's hard to tell every single American to eat the exact same thing because that doesn't work for every unique person. Um, so again, pretty impossible to do that, but for individuals that have very specific nutrition or health goals, or, um, and that could be, I should say something like if you're trying to increase your protein intake, cause you're trying to compete in an athletic sport and want to create more muscle mass, or if you have specific weight loss goals, those could be nutrition or health goals, um, or for those with medical conditions requiring that they modify their diet, such as those with diabetes, they should really be seeking guidance from a registered dietitian who can give more personalized recommendations, because while the, the dietary guidelines are great for providing just general nutrition um, information for all Americans, they don't personalize it based off of each person's unique needs. So I think that's gonna consistently be one of the limitations of them, but for overall guidance, I really love the dietary guidelines. I think they provide a great overview and outline for each American to generally follow. And then again, especially for these nutrition assistance programs that we have that are so vital in our public health programs.
0: And I just remember thinking about meal planning. It's important to have kind of like a rainbow of food on your plate to have some reds and some oranges and some purples and some white. And when I think about eating and and drinking and planning my meals and please don't laugh at this, but when I was young, I remember the food pyramid with Mm -hmm. grains on the bottom and that was the largest group and then fruits and vegetables and then meat and dairy and then fats on top. But now I'm seeing... Something called My Plate as a tool in helping to plan meals. So, what is My Plate, and how does that help with meal planning?
2: So, I'll start with saying, don't be ashamed of remembering food pyramid. I think we all had food pyramid um, drilled into our minds because it was plastered anywhere you would go, especially in the schools. I'm sure, Greg, you remember the food pyramid too.
1: <laughs> I do. Yes, I, I do remember the food pyramid.
2: Yeah, that's been around for a while. It came out shortly after the first guidelines came out in the 80s, but I think it wasn't until sometime in the 90s. I'm just forgetting the exact years that it was released. So we had the food pyramid from probably about the 90s until 2011. So that was a long time for us to have the pyramid. It was just modified a little bit year after year. Um, But my plate was released in 2011 as the intention of being a more user-friendly way of looking at the food pyramid, um, which is really my plate and the former food pyramid are just meant to be a visual translation of the dietary guidelines. So what's great about my plate is we eat most of our meals on plates. Sure we have things we put in bowls or just things we grab and go with, but generally we're all familiar with filling a plate of food. So my plate provides really good visualization of you should have at least a quarter of your plate having vegetables and a quarter of your plate having fruit, just a quarter of your plate having grains which from what I've seen is usually better for um, portion control, less for remembering to put grains on our plate, but we tend to eat more grains than we actually need to be eating. Uh, And then also the protein food groups taking up another quadrant of the plate. So it's meant to just be something that helps easily translate those guidelines. And it makes for a good visual. Uh, You'll see it posted just like we saw the food pyramid posted in schools. It's posted in schools and other public health programs now to help relay that information as kind of a, um, a subtle nutrition nudge, a friendly reminder of this is what you should be eating. You just visually see it quickly.
0: And you've already kind of touched on this, but what are some of the other differences between my plate and the food pyramid?
2: So one of the big things that's not found on my plate anymore is the very top of the food pyramid used to have fats, oils, sugar, and salt in it. And that was, um, being at the top of the pyramid that was indicating that it should be consumed in the least amount and my plate doesn't even include basil in the visual but something that is specified in the dietary guidelines is that we should consume fats but healthy fats from things like nuts and seeds or from fatty fish like salmon Um, and that it does specify still that we should limit our um, oils that are from more refined sources like vegetable oils uh, we should reduce our saturated fat intake, shouldn't be consuming any trans fats and should still be reducing our sugar and salt intake. So that's a, a big thing. That's a, a very vis- visual difference between the two. And then in general, the portion sizes are a little bit different, too, because it, it used to have on the food pyramid, the, um, the grain products were on the bottom of the pyramid, meaning that you should consume the most of those. But the serving side, size compared to that, and now what's seen on my plate, is a little bit less. So they did change the serving sizes a little bit. And that, again, just is with changes in the dietary guidelines over the years, based off of the latest research that we have.
0: So, is that kind of the benefit of my plate, just portion control? And what are some of the other benefits?
2: I would love to hear Greg's take on this as a non dietitian of what he thinks the benefits are. Because I know he's, we've worked with my plate together. So, I know he's familiar with the visualizations. But for me, my biggest, um, the biggest thing I'm a fan of about my plate is the vegetables being on there because I do think people tend to forget to eat their vegetables (laughs) and vegetables are so important for getting essential micronutrients like vitamins and minerals. Uh, So it's that friendly reminder that your meal should have vegetables included with it. But when I try to ask people, they have a serving of vegetables with every meal usually it just happens at one meal of the day and it's typically dinner time that they might have veggies
1: as a non-dietician tara i'll agree with you that i think one of the benefits of of my plate over the food pyramid is that it just makes it easier to emphasize what you should be putting on your plate and maybe it's a it's a little easier to interpret than try and figure out like well, the base of the pyramid is pasta and then like up top a little bit, we have uh, meat and poultry. And then at the very tip top, we have salts and like, what are the proper ratios? And I think with, with my plate, it simplifies that a little bit and just kind of makes you think about what is it that you're, you're, you should be putting on your plate uh, in in rough proportions. And it it does seem to emphasize uh, uh, fruits and and vegetables uh, and, and protein uh, and, and sort of the variety of food that you should have on any plate uh, that, mm-hmm. you, that
0: you're eating. And so how is MyPlate used at UAB?
2: Well, a fun project that we worked on a couple of years ago, and it's still in place at UAB, is at the Blazer Kitchen location in the Hill Student Center. We did a little redesign uh, working with student outreach over there to incorporate some MyPlate visuals. So we have MyPlate, put in poster form on the walls of that blazer kitchen, but then also on the shelves within um, the storage area where food is found. We have um, the MyPlate images for like the vegetable icon put on the shelving units and that indicates here's where you can find your veggies and the same for fruits and and so on. So it's meant to be a little nutrition nudge to indicate um, here's your veggies, you should grab some veggies, look at the MyPlate visual and try to connect that that's what a healthy plate would look like. So that, Tara, that's a really fun project we have. Yeah,
1: I was gonna say one of the sort of interesting results from that project that, that you uh, led was the number of students that indicated if they were or were not familiar with, USD, uh, with the uh, USDA MyPlate. It seems like uh, there were a reasonable number of students who were familiar with it.
2: Yes, that's right. A reasonable number were, and but I, I would love to see 100% um, <laughs> because if uh, our college students are coming out of high schools where it's shared and taught in the high schools, you'd hope that more would be familiar with it. But I think um, we still had just over, just about half the students that went, I'm forgetting the exact number off the top of my head, um, but it was good to see that at least some of them were familiar with MyPlate.
1: And thinking about uh, sort of the purpose of MyPlate is advising, you know, not just individual Americans and personalized recommendations, but for programs and policies and what food should be available. Uh, Given your efforts to sort of create healthy recipes in uh, Blazer Kitchen based on the food that was available, was it it difficult for you to help create uh, or prepare meals Uh, and make food items uh, generally available to students that would uh, sort of help, would sort of meet the USDA MyPlate recommendations?
2: It was actually completely possible to make MyPlate-friendly meals based off of the foods found in Blazer Kitchen. And I don't think I specified before for listeners, Blazer Kitchen, if you're not familiar, is the on-campus food pantry that we have at UAB. It's available to all employees or all students on campus. It's a a great resource that we have here at UAB. And the location we're specifying is in the Hill Student Center, which is specifically just for students. But there's also a location in medical towers that both employees and students can use, but they're relocating soon. So you'll definitely want to go into UAB's website and look up Laser Kitchen to find the new address once it's posted. But I was completely able to make my plate-friendly recipes from the foods found in Blazer Kitchen because they do have lean proteins, Um, even in addition to canned foods, which I think is a common perception of what you can find in a food pantry, they would consistently get meat items and they would just be frozen cuts of meat that you could come and pick up when you did shopping, just the same way as you would shop at a grocery store. Um, But then there were still canned items if you needed something to be held uh, as a non-perishable item for longer, like a lean can of chicken, for instance, or tuna. Um, But that was something that I was really pleased to find on campus at UAB because I know it's possible in general when you go to other food banks or food pantry and assistance programs, but um, there is certainly a perception that eating healthy is expensive but it doesn't have to be expensive if you're looking off of items that are available to you and trying to build it according to my plate. So again, going through that structure of here's my vegetables, let me pick a veggie from here and just building your plate off of that.
0: And so I'm very lucky in that I live less than a mile from a grocery store and have access to healthy foods like fruits and vegetables when I decide I want to eat vegetables and planning my meals. (laughs) But according to a study from the USDA Economic Research Service in 2018, an estimated one in nine Americans were food insecure, which equates to over 37 million Americans, including more than 11 million children. What's food insecurity and food security?
2: So food insecurity refers to when an individual doesn't have a safe, consistent access to nutritious foods. And typically lack of access comes from uh, something like finances. You might not have the finances to purchase the foods that you need, or it could be other inability to access foods, um, such as if you live in a neighborhood that doesn't have a grocery store within walking distance, then you're considered to be living in a food desert and are experiencing food insecurity. So ideally we want everyone to be food secure. It's um, terrible to think that some people could wake up and not know where their next meal is coming from because of this experience of food insecurity. But like you mentioned, we do still have a pretty high prevalence of food insecurity in the United States. Um, it's been slowly decreasing over the past decade since, 2000, um, well, since 2019 was the last report of numbers, but um, it still is a very prevalent issue in the United States, a big public health concern
0: who does food insecurity affect? Does it vary by state? Are there certain demographics or populations who are more or less food insecure?
2: There are, yes. Um, Food insecurity definitely affects more people than we realize. I'll start with that because it's not always a chronic thing. So for some people, food insecurity could just occur over one month of the year. It might be one month that they particularly have bad financial experiences like a flat tire that costs a lot of money and they have to have their tire fixed to be able to drive their car to their job. So that cuts into their food budget for the month and they're experiencing food insecurity. Or often when people are diagnosed with new health conditions that they have expensive medical bills or new prescriptions that they have to pay for that could cause a new onset of food insecurity until they can figure out how to live with this new medical condition that costs more money. Um, But generally, as you mentioned, with the numbers of 37 million Americans and about 11 million children, food insecurity affects both adults and children, but the rates are definitely worst in the southeastern states in the United States. So like Alabama, for instance, whose food insecurity rate was 17% in 2018, when the national average was just about 11%. So we do have much higher food insecurity, unfortunately, in Alabama than we'll see elsewhere in the U.S. And again, that's consistent with south southeastern states. Um, it's also more prevalent in households that are headed by a single parent, but particularly by single women with children. Um, it's much more prevalent in Black non-Hispanic households, as well as Hispanic households. And um, I think those are the, the biggest populations that are affected is, again, parents with children, especially mothers, living alone with children, and then Black, non-Hispanic households and
0: Hispanic households. And how is food insecurity related to the social determinants of health?
1: Right. So, you know, the social determinants of health, you know, very broadly are the, the characteristics of the environments uh, that, and you'll hear it described as the environments in which uh, we live, work, and play, uh, and how those influence our health and, and human development. So food insecurity uh, is an important social determinant of health. You can think about it as uh, sort of a material resource uh, that uh, you want, uh, or limited material resources that make it difficult for people to provide themselves with uh, adequate nutrition to, to, to do what they want to do uh, and to flourish uh, in, their, in their lives. Uh, and food insecurity has been uh, associated with a number of adverse health outcomes as well. There are folks that are interested in how food insecurity might affect medication adherence. There are uh, studies looking at you know the relationship between food insecurity and functional health outcomes in older adults. And so food insecurity is one important social determinant of health and many other different kinds Of health outcomes.
0: And so, with the numbers that I mentioned earlier about how many people in America are food insecure, those numbers were from 2018, which was before the COVID 19 pandemic hit. So, with people losing their jobs, sources of income, disruptions to the food supply chain, especially early on in the pandemic in 2020. I can only imagine the COVID-19 pandemic has increased levels of food insecurity in America. Can you talk a little bit about how the impact of COVID-19 has impacted food insecurity? Has it changed over the course of the pandemic? Are we better off now than a year ago?
2: Um, Well, I think something great to lead this response with is, I saw early last year when the pandemic first hit that Feeding America, who is a, it's a, food bank organization. It's the largest uh, organization supporting food banks in the country. So it's a wonderful nonprofit. And even in Alabama, we're directly impacted by Feeding America because our local food banks are food bank branches of Feeding America, such as the Central Alabama food bank that we have in Birmingham. And they said that the current crisis of the COVID-19 pandemic was likely to reverse all the improvements that had occurred over the past decade in regards to reducing food insecurity. So what we've experienced with COVID is profound for a number of reasons, but I am very concerned about what we're going to see over the next year or even the next decade with the food insecurity rates in our country. Um, Cause I briefly mentioned earlier that they had consistently been decreasing over a decade. And that was specifically since the great recession in 2008. We saw a big spike in food insecurity during that time when unemployment um, rates rose to 14.7%, which is uh, actually the exact same unemployment rate that we had in March of 2020 when COVID first hit. So after seeing a spike in unemployment, you see a lot of people that don't have income, which leads to lack of consistent access to safe, nutritious foods or food insecurity. Uh, So unfortunately, we don't have a ton of data available yet. There's some preliminary studies, but in general, I think we're gonna be seeing food insecurity specific from COVID for a while to come.
0: Dr. Rivelle, you mentioned just a little while ago about studies and research going on about food insecurity and the impacts on health outcomes. Now, with the COVID 19 pandemic, more people being food insecure. What are some of the long term health implications of the pandemic and the increases in food insecurity?
1: Well, I I think it would be important to take into account, sort of in line with the dietary guidelines, uh, the timing in which people experience food insecurity. Uh, And so the health outcomes might vary by the age at which someone is affected. So if you are uh, a, a young mother, or if you're, you're pregnant, and and the, the child uh, experiences food insecurity through the experiences of the mother, that could have very long term health effects on the developing child. Uh, similarly, if you're, you're an older adult, and you experience food insecurity, uh, then that could have a serious, uh, you know, health consequences for your functional health outcomes. I'm thinking specifically about some some research that Tara uh, and I and another graduate student recently uh, looked at that found that uh, older adults who reported greater food insecurity tended to have slower gait speeds, and gait speeds is an important measure of functional health and it predicts frailty and mortality among older adults. So depending on the age group in which someone is in could, uh, well, really shape how uh, food insecurity impacts the health of those individuals. Now, I think, uh, and we were chatting a little bit about this beforehand, but we know that nutrition and when you may experience nutritional uh, deficits can have very long-term effects on health and weight. So for example, uh, there's something called the Dutch famine in which there were portions of the Netherlands during World War II that... Uh, because of a German sort of barricade uh, that they had very limited access to food, sort of a very extreme version of food insecurity. And then researchers studied the effects of this exposure to the famine, uh, this extreme food insecurity on the gestating uh, children, the, the, uh, depending on what trimester they were at in the mother, first, second, or third trimester. And the effects of food insecurity actually even varied, by the trimester in which uh, someone was exposed to it. But for those that were exposed to the famine in general, you see higher rates of diabetes, you see higher rates of obesity. And so that's a very extreme example, uh, but I wouldn't be surprised if you see increased rates of other um, cardiometabolic diseases following a sudden surge of food insecurity uh, in individuals. And whether or not those surges in other uh, chronic health conditions are directly a consequence of food insecurity, I think that will be difficult to disentangle, but I suspect that looking forward, uh, following the uh, food insecurity associated with, with the pandemic, you'll you'll also see increases in, in different kinds of chronic diseases, including uh, metabolic conditions and obesity.
2: Greg, to your point, there's even some conditions that you could directly link to food insecurity um, because of the nutrient deficiencies like neural tube defects in newborns, that's directly linked to a folic acid deficiency. So if a, a woman during pregnancy has food insecurity and she can't get access to folate rich containing foods and experiences a um, childbirth with a neural tube defect, that's even another way that we could be seeing this. Um, so yeah, that's, it's going to be interesting, very sad to, um, see this coming, but, uh, very interesting to see what comes from COVID in regards to long-term effects and health outcomes in a lot of different age groups.
0: And so you, you mentioned both older Americans and then women who are pregnant as being potentially groups that have been impacted by COVID-19 pandemic in terms of food insecurity, but are there any other populations that are also heavily impacted?
2: Um, Well, I know children have definitely been impacted with the closure of schools. Uh, Some school districts were, it's just been amazing to see what they've been able to do through the pandemic. I mean, for one, outside of our conversation today, but just converting to all virtual learning at a time was just amazing to think that teachers were going from being in the classroom to putting everything online in a matter of days. Um, But also in the cafeterias, they were providing In a lot of schools meals for the kids still if they could come to the school and pick up their meals but a lot of children rely on those free meals from their school whether it be just the school lunch program or if they can get to school early enough before the school day they can also get free breakfast too in a lot of our local school districts um so i think kids were unfortunately very impacted if they weren't able to get to the school to get free meals we could see that they're health has suffered during the pandemic due to lack of nutrition from not consistently getting those nutritious meals.
0: And then specifically for UAB students and employees, what resources are there for food insecurity? And have any of these resources been impacted by COVID-19?
2: So one of the great resources that I mentioned earlier we were talking about MyPlate is Blazer Kitchen on our campus. And Blazer Kitchen is the on-campus food pantry that has been fully operational all during COVID. As soon as COVID hit, they said, we're not shutting down. We need to continue to provide meals to our campus community. So they've had to change their operation a bit where you can't just pop into the food pantry and get food items from them. You need to reserve in advance when you're going to stop by and they'll bag items for you to come and pick up. But this service is available for anyone in our UAB community that's in need. Um, And you can find their contact information just by looking up Blazer Kitchen on UAB's website. So that's a great service for our whole community. Um, And something else I don't think a lot of people realize is the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program I mentioned earlier, which is the new uh, food stamps, college students are eligible for SNAP as well. I don't think that they realize it because it's that transitional period where you've just become an adult by age. So you don't realize that you're available for these adult, you're eligible rather for these adult benefits. But um, there are a couple caveats where you do have to be working a minimum number of hours a week. But I think it's something like 10 hours a week. And a lot of college students do have part-time jobs. Um, Or if you're working as a work-study student, you're automatically eligible to register for SNAP benefits. And what that means is it's basically like getting dollars towards your groceries when you go to the grocery store. So that's another great benefit that I would love to see more of our UAB students taking advantage of. When we um, did a survey with Laser Kitchen users to see how many people were using external benefits, minimal were using SNAP. It was, it was really unbelievable to see how few could were using SNAP benefits. That's a great offering for those who are in need.
0: Changing topics a little, Ms. Harmon, you have a background in both health behavior theory and nutrition as a registered dietitian. What have you learned in the health behavior program that complements your knowledge as an RD?
2: I've loved being in the health behavior program. I, When I was looking to complete my doctorate and looking at different programs out there, um, what really struck me about the health behavior program was the very theory-based approach to community interventions because I love that you have that strong foundation of this is what should work based off of people's behaviors and what we know about understanding behaviors in implementing community intervention programs. And compared to what I've learned as a dietitian and dietetics education, it's very much an individualized approach. Yes, we learned how to do nutrition counseling and education for both individuals and groups, but you're really looking at each person's personalized nutrition needs. So I feel like now I'm able to take that and translate it to larger population-based levels with using the health behavior theories and that approach to designing community intervention programs. And I'm just so excited to get more and more involved in it as I finish up my degree and keep designing programs hopefully long into the future and seeing Uh, how impactful they are, not just doing things to collect the data but actually seeing something that'll make an impact in the community is what I'm really excited about.
1: One thing that I really like about some of Tara's uh, research interests and intervention efforts uh, related to food insecurity is trying to uh, reduce food insecurity, not just by paying attention to the availability and accessibility of food, but also uh, thinking about how can we increase the skill set and self-efficacy of individuals to use the food that is available to prepare healthy meals and try and approach it from that angle. Uh, and some of the, the theories that, that Tara has relied on uh, or the constructs of, of some of the theories that she has relied on, like social cognitive theory, really emphasize something like self-efficacy the sense that one is able to successfully perform a task. In this case, perhaps it's preparing a, a healthy meal using foods that's available in Blazer Kitchen. And this is kind of a a, a framework that Tara has has really developed and implemented, uh, and will continue to research the effects of this this approach throughout her her study here. So I'm really interested to see what what she learns uh, from from doing that.
2: Yes, thank you. It's really fun to see. As you mentioned before, I am also an instructor, so I do love to teach. I love to teach and see people use what they've learned. So applying that to food insecurity and to research, I would just love to see people have more general knowledge of healthy cooking skills and just really basic cooking skills. Like you'd probably be surprised if you came over to my house at dinner time and saw how simple my cooking is knowing I'm a dietitian. but not every meal has to be some may event with a really intricate recipe. It's just about getting good nutrients cooked and on a plate and into your body to help nourish you. And you can do that with really a wide variety of ingredients. And again, that includes things like what you would find at a food pantry. Uh, but I think a lot of people just don't have that basic knowledge of general cooking skills. Um, and that's not coming from just thinking out of nowhere. I've seen it firsthand in nutrition counseling with people that a lot of people don't know how to bake a chicken breast, even know what that means. Um, So if we can get more people just familiar with what foods are used for in our body, what basic essential nutrients do and how to create very simple basic meals, I think we would see some um, pretty good differences in how people are able to manage these situations that they find themselves in that are crisis situations like food insecurity, but can you better manage it with what's available to you what resources you can get your hands on and not see those poor health outcomes
0: and that's really good lead-in for the next and our final question but any advice for people trying to change their behaviors to eat healthier and exercise more I know I've, I've talked to friends and I'm not a big vegetable eater but a lot of them say it's the way I cook my vegetables that there are different ways to cook them to make them taste better and kind of going back to what you said it's just about not knowing the best recipes or you know how to cook certain foods being important, but any other advice for people like me trying to eat better?
2: Oh, absolutely. I I think one of the biggest problems with just culturally, the way that we approach changing healthy habits like eating healthier or exercising more is we try too much of a radical all or nothing approach (laughs) when really I would suggest for anyone just to start small So if your goal is to eat more vegetables, then I would start with a goal of, well, first assess how much am I really eating vegetables? Just kind of get a general idea of it. And if you're not eating a vegetable every day, then start with that goal. See if you can incorporate one serving of vegetables at least once a day for a week and see how it goes. And during that time, when you're first getting started with any new goal, experiment with what works for you. So just because Someone might like to grill their vegetables. Um, Someone else might prefer to bake them or you might love to put them um, in a pan and stir fry them. A lot of it is just taste preferences and textures come off in different ways to different people. So that's a great time when you're starting with something new to experiment a little bit and see which ways you like your vegetables to be cooked and then try to repeat that again the next week. And then once you feel like you have that good habit down then you can build off of it, and instead of just having one vegetable serving a day, see if you can have two. And you can really do that with any health habit. So even if it um, I'm not a personal trainer or um, in kinesiology or anything, but even if it was something like exercise, you could start small with trying to exercise just once a week, and then increasing to two times a week, and so on. And as you get used to having that as a part of your life, it really does become easier to build off of those small habits that you've formed and they become more long-term. It ends up being much harder to break those because it's just part of your regular routine. And I
1: don't I don't have a whole lot of advice uh, to add on top of uh, Tara's advice. Uh, I'll only say that I, I'm fortunate. I actually love to cook and, and try new recipes and, and experiment with, uh, with new things. Uh, I've always've I've, I've cooked at restaurants, I cooked at restaurants through college. So I actually in, enjoy cooking. and so i uh, I would encourage folks that are interested in trying new recipes uh, to to do a little bit of experimentation. and it's okay if it doesn't work out the first time with a little bit of practice, you'll you'll be uh, putting together great meals in no time.
2: Yeah you have to experiment. You have to play around with uh, these new habits and different recipes is a great example too. Find what works for you. And you might end up finding a recipe that you love, and that ends up being your staple Sunday meal that you make for yourself or something like that.
0: Well, that is all good advice, and it is making me very hungry for lunch. But I think that is all the questions we have time for. Thank you both for being here and providing me and our listeners with so much great information about nutrition and healthy eating. And we're going to be sure to include links to the topics we discussed on our podcast website.
2: All right. Well, thank you so much for having us today. This has been really fun. I hope the listeners learned a lot. And again, just thank
0: you. I love talking about this.
1: Thank you, Elena. I had fun.
0: Well, thank you both. And thank you to everyone listening. Please tune in next time for another episode of Population Health Plugin.